Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Lost to Time. Lost to Time is a podcast brought to you by Camp, the Contemporary Art Music Project, and it's a podcast where we explore composers, musicians, and other artists whose work has been lost to time. These are artists from marginalized groups who are underrepresented, underrated, and they deserve our ears and our attention. Today, you're joined by myself, Joshua Mallard, and co-host... Oh, you pointed at me. Hello, I am Han Hitchen. Yeah. I'm the co-host of Lost to Time with Joshua Mallard. <laughs> yes, and of course, by the time you hear this, uh, we're well into the holiday season. You probably heard are hearing this after Christmas. So happy holidays to everyone who's happy celebrating. Happy New Year. Yep, happy New Year. That's coming up. Um, and, you know, maybe if this is posted even after that, you know, just <laughs> happy everything. We hope you had a good time. Yeah, ha- be happy, y'all. Yeah, eat some good food and, um, you know, have a good time. Um, Hopefully we can contribute to that. Uh, We are here with another episode. Before we jump in, we would like to tell you about some of the upcoming camp events. So one of them is Project Goot, which is a virtual concert on Wednesday, December 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So this is a live event. You can find more info on it on contemporaryartmusicproject.org under the events area. So this is really cool. It's a collaboration between CAMP, the Arts Council Korea, and there's four Korean composers, and they will be reimagining a traditional ritual exploring the meaning of life and death. Sounds really cool. Oh, yes. It has me thinking of our composer today, but we'll get into that. Anyways, Han, how about you tell us of some of the other stuff? Sure. So I think the elephant in the room is we have Campground 22 coming up this year. That's going to be March 24th through 26th in the Tampa Bay area, specifically Tampa and St. Petersburg, Florida. And it's going to be their inaugural international music festival. It's going to be, it's just right around the corner. It's going to be a really good time. Yes, lots of new music, great performing artists, and it's great to see this in Florida, especially in the Tampa, St. Petersburg area. Yes. Now, otherwise, uh, there's definitely some other podcasts you should be tuning into. Of course, you have us two on Lost of Time, but you can hear Earshot with Logan Barrett and Tucker Johnson, where they explore the cutting edge of contemporary music. You can hear Zachary Hale on Play the Ink, where... They discuss the relationship between composers and performers in interviews, so guest composers. And you can hear uh, Diane on Musical Headwaters. Uh, Diane speaks with composers and learns about their creative process. Um, And you will start to see some interviews on here, so we hope to be bringing you some guests. Maybe you've already heard some (laughs) by the time this is posted. Yes, stay tuned. Oh, let's tell you about what you could do to help support all of this. Um, There's a GoFundMe page for camp, and we'd love for you to donate. Or if you can't donate, spreading the word definitely helps a lot. You know, arts thrives off of a support network of like-minded individuals. Uh, We need support, and hopefully, you know, the world keeps going around as long as artists support art, and we can get more people interested in things like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Please donate. (laughs) Yes. But all that said, let's get into the composer today, Galina Ustvolskaya. Now, some of you may have heard of this composer, some of you not. 
Um, but there's a lot to get into. And kind of like our Julius Eastman episode, there's a lot of really cool music from this composer, but a lot of uh, mystery, uh, mythos, and a lot of complications in the output. Uh, so hopefully we will get you into all of that. But that's kind of what we like to see, right? Like yeah. a mystery. Personally, I think if there's a composer that you haven't heard and you find all this interesting information out of them and it's a bit of a rabbit hole, that should be a good reason to, you know, start listening to their music, start programming their music because you found a hidden gem. Absolutely. You know? You're probably wondering what do we mean, but how about we tell you a little bit about that with starting with Ustvolskaya's bio. Mm -hmm. Right off the bat, there's some issues biographically documenting everything that went on. You're going to find that out as we continue, but Han, how about you take us right in? Sure. So just going right to the beginning, Galina Ustvolskaya was born in Petrograd, which is now known as St. Petersburg, Russia, in 1919. And she died actually in the same city in 2006. So she lived a pretty long life. Yeah, that's a long time. Yes, which is awesome. Um, and according to Usvolskaya, her father was a lawyer with a good education. And he was also the son of an Orthodox priest, while her mother was a school teacher from a noble, respected family, but a poor family. So they were not really wealthy. Um, and she had one sibling who was her twin sister. Interesting. So, you know, we start to see trends between the composers here. And this is one where, you know, it's hard to find mention of anyone musical in the family. Uskaya mm -hmm. um, is like, you know, going into music uh, seemingly like alone. But that's really interesting. Um, there's probably a whole social political playing into this, um, like how how does a woman composer end up studying music during this time? Um, we'll touch a bit on that later, but I just wanted to point that out because hopefully as you go through these episodes, you start to learn some things about how people from marginalized groups end up doing music. Yeah, definitely really important. So speaking of getting into music, in 1926, she started attending the Leningrad College, Choral College, excuse me. So not only was she a composer, she was also a cellist for a while. And then from 1937 to 39, she actually studied at the Professional School of Music, which is the college attached to the Leningrad Conservatory. And after that, she started studying at the actual Leningrad Conservatory. And here she studied with Shostakovich and Steinberg at that conservatory. She studied there up until when World War II hit, actually, and her education was put on pause, where she had to serve at a military hospital. And this was potentially due to the Leningrad blockade or the siege of Leningrad, excuse me. And this part of her bio is, at, is understandably a bit hazy and fuzzy. Yes, a world war will do that. Um, this was a kind of a turbulent time and I guess really some context that we should acknowledge when talking about her bio is this is Soviet Union, Russia. So there's a lot of stuff going on here when you sort of read in between the lines. Like you can't just take the bio at face value and it's part of the reason why there's so much mystery. Um, what we mean by that is like, first we're talking about all this education and stuff, but the music activity during that time is potentially being like censored, um, musical styles restricted, you know. 
and then a full a full blockade, things like that are going to derail your education. Um, so during all this time, Ustvulskaya is still composing a lot, but there's like some issues underneath the surface. Um, we thought that'd be a cool thing to sort of like keep in mind um, when we talk about things like literally World War II happening during her lifetime, uh, being a woman in, in St. Petersburg. This is all like really significant information if you like sort of contextualize it. And then a lot of music straight up censored. Oh, yes. Musical style, all that stuff. So anything you read about her output that, during this time could potentially be kind of like, you know, skewed or biased, depending on where you read it from, things like that. And um, she herself had a lot of opinions on how things should be presented. But let's not spoil too much. Um, mm -hmm. After this blockade, um, it's kind of like a, a mix up of what happened. But at some point, she was dismissed from the conservatory. Um, so her studies came to an end. She was apparently accused of formalism. Now, I mean, it. I don't know exactly what that means, but in the context of like, you know, everyone having sort of a, a mandated aesthetic, um, this could be issues or this could be Usvulskaya going into conflict with, you know, the conservatory heads for her musical style, which she does end up developing a really particular, really awesome <laughs> musical style. Oh, yes. So maybe the government didn't like that. Maybe the conservatory didn't like that. You, there's no telling. Um, I read some things like maybe she had like a neoclassical aesthetic during this time, things like that. Long story short, something didn't go right <laughs> between her and admin. Yeah. And, you know, they they dismissed her. After the war, she began teaching all the way from basically 1947 to 1975, so quite a while, um, definitely composing during the time too. But uh, this was at the Professional School of Music, um, so back where she was at earlier. During this time, she's teaching a lot of students. Um, so you could say she's influential as an educator and as a composer um, and is easily like a very influential composer coming out of Russia. Absolutely. I think that's worth noting because, of course, it's outside of Russia. Um, most people haven't heard of her. Yeah, I mean, that's really true. I mean, as two young composers in the U.S., we, you know, she was not a composer who was very much integrated into our curriculum until recently. Yep, and also in most curriculums, just not there. Well, um, yeah. But very good composer, uh, which you'll hear when we talk about the music. Yeah, so she was really active in the 40s and 50s. She composed a lot of vocal works and film scores, actually. But something that a lot of sources don't discuss is the censorship of her music during this time. So we kind of have to take descriptors and um, anecdotes of her style during this period with a grain of salt. We don't have a super clear defined view of how she was developing as a composer during this time, unfortunately. Yeah, this was super serious stuff. Like if you were too experimental or outside of the, you know, nationalist composition style that they wanted, um, very serious consequences could happen, like threatening of your life, your family's life, things like that. So, I mean, this is immense pressure to, you know, I mean, it changed how you write as a composer, whether yeah. you like it or not, unless you're just completely fearless, you know? Yeah. 
But all that said, there's a lot of composing being done during this time, and there's a good variety of like instrumentations and stuff, and that's the key information to take away here. Like factually, we know <laughs> she was composing during this time. Um, though as far as like descriptions of the music, descriptions of her style, this is all stuff that's kind of like a bit blurred, you know, understandably, because if they're going to <laughs> force you to compose a certain way, it's going to be difficult. And, um, you know, she was dismissed from her conservatory um, for some sort of like aesthetic reason uh, as well. So there's definitely some rub there. And um, she was very much trying to kind of come into her own, develop her own style. And she was very adamant, at least in quotations from her, that like she, as by the time of her death, was composing music that, you know, no one else would compose. That was her own and living or dead stood on its own, uh, separate from other composers. That's where we get into a bit of like the tea to be spilled about the issues of biography. Now, compared to other composers, other composers like um, Julius Eastman, Undine Smith-Moore, they're facing like, you know, racism. Um, and then in the case of some of them, not a, they're part of two marginalized groups, being a woman and a person of color in the U.S. Um, you know, what's that like in Russia, being a woman in the Soviet Union, um, being a composer? Um, you know, this is <laughs> difficult stuff. The biography itself is very hard to find information on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Usvalskaya actually made it a point that Olga Gladkova's, I apologize for the pronunciation, her biography on Usvalskaya, which is titled Galina Usvalskaya, Music is Obsession. And unfortunately, just as a note, it's not available in English. Um, she notes that this is the only acceptable source of information regarding herself. So I think that's an important thing to note when we're talking about biographies of composers and composers saying, hey, that that one about me, that one's good. You know, that's something we need to take. But in. even then, this is why we said it's like a little bit of tea because mm -hmm. other academics have critiqued this biography as being like, you know, potentially inaccurate. Um, and one thing to know is like um, coming out of the Soviet Union coming out of the World War II, all this stuff, a lot of Uswaskaya's life has been like censored and stuff. And understandably, she might want to control a bit, not only how her biographies proceed, but her musical output, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you look at her catalog on her website, um, it's there's only 20, 21 pieces listed. This is not all the pieces she composed, but these are the pieces that she identifies with and approves of. So there's a disconnect there between like, you know, the pieces she composed and the pieces that she liked and that she felt like she composed of her full will, I guess. Yeah. Um, but we might <laughs> we might not know. It's like, you know, a bit of a mystery. Um, but yeah, some academics think that biography is biased and not comprehensive or objective. But of course, the word from Uswaskaya herself is that, you know, this is a trusted biography. So who do we believe? We're not the authorities on this topic. <laughs> yeah, we're not like some kind of like council that's going to tell you what to do or how to interpret how composers want their biographies to be censored or not censored, you know. And I mean, I can relate to that. There are some things in my 
bio that a lot of people would want to know that I'm not, I just don't want to put in there. <laughs> yes. I mean, this, this reminds me quite a bit of like, um, the Robert Kraft, Stephen Walsh, um, thing where, you know, Robert Kraft does a lot of biography, biographical information on Stravinsky. So does Walsh. They both disagree on a lot of things. They had serious academic beef, apparently. Like, mm -hmm. if you, there's like literal text, like, you know, they couldn't DM back then, so they had to put it in their books. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this kind of is, is something like that where um, maybe Uspiskaya wants to keep certain things out or develop a certain image. There's sort of this like mythos. And I don't mean like a Robert Johnson deal with the devil mythos. I mean more like, who is Uspiskaya, you know? What's she about? Um, so there's a, um, a, a book or a, a dissertation titled Demystifying Galina Uspiskaya, Critical Examination and Performance Interpretation. Um, how about you talk about this one, Han? Absolutely. So this thesis is by Elena Nalimova. In this thesis, it says as follows, that Uspiskaya became known in the West as a reclusive, eccentric, and relentlessly original person and a woman with a man's brain, the lady with a hammer who drove away admirers and slammed doors in the face of a TV documentary crew who denounced performers of her music and dismissed as well as discouraged any attempts at verbal interpretations of her works. Then later it says, the composer herself was endowed with the title, The Uncompromising Prophet of Nonconformity, and later she was seen as an uncompromising artist who deliberately rebelled against the Soviet establishment, a lonely island in the ocean of the 20th century compositional trends, a self-sufficient, relentlessly original, and stylistically isolated artist, a doctrinally, I apologize for that pronunciation, religious person with religiosity being a fundamental inspiration for her music. That's a mouthful. That was a mouthful. I apologize. Now about that, this is kind of more like, you know, the lines are blurred now. So we have this, this text saying there's a some sort of false narrative, and then we have Uspuskaya saying like, okay, they go off this bio. And then the paper that we got this information from is itself trying to, you know, um, <laughs> establish more factual information. Uh, by the way, we'll just include links to all these papers for the academics out there who might want to know, you know, <laughs> what is the discourse around this right now. Um, that being said, there's some sort of thing that they're describing as like the myth, you know, like a myth around her character, her personality, her demeanor, and her music. We have no idea uh, what is correct, but we've, we've tried to give you just the plain facts. Um, and we're now giving you the disclaimer that there's more information out there, but it's a mix of like, you know, this debated information. That being said, there's one thing that's for certain, and that's misogyny was very much a thing and still is today. Yeah. Um, and being a woman in Europe could mean a different thing from being, you know, a woman in the U.S. We've been talking about a lot of American composers. What's it like all the way in Russia and the Soviet Union right now? There's a lot of problematic philosophy during the time, and there still is today, like this gender-rolled-oriented idea of like, what 
women can do that is useful is like X, Y, and Z. And it's almost always seen as like, if you dig into it, basically what's useful to men, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like what's useful to society is deemed as what's useful to men. Uh, To talk a little bit about that composition as an act was considered something like logical, scientific, masculine. And I mean, a lot of women in music are just not discussed because of this. Another thing is the philosophies of the time were that, like, basically women were, like, not original thinkers in in the time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not saying this. It wasn't even, I mean, honestly, even at the time, that philosophy is not valid. It's never valid. Yeah. And with that in mind, a lot of people kind of just discredit women composers. Um, A way to think about this is, how often do you see Ustvoskaya, um, Fanny Mendelssohn, Clara Schumann, Nadia, and Lily Boulanger described as the greats? You know, yeah. um, and to an extent, a lot of a lot of times they didn't get the attention of of their music during their lifetime uh, to a similar extent of um, other other composers, men composers. Yes. Yeah, Han. How about you talk a bit? Because <laughs> I've been talking probably everyone's ear off. No, absolutely. Um, And yeah, it's really weird because these, in this sort of setting of being a composer, a woman composer at this time, a lot of these composers were just seen as, you know, the students of these male composers or inspired by these male composers, whether they were their students or even like, you know, their spouses or, or sisters or whatever it may be, whatever the relationship was, it was always like, these women composers were attached to other composers. I mean, you got Fanny Mendelssohn and Clara Schumann being, you know, connected to Robert Schumann and Felix Mendelssohn, yes. Um, Usvolskaya being connected to her teacher and mentor, Shostakovich. I mean, it's kind of a thing where why can't we just, or Nadia Boulanger being credited for being a teacher of all these other composers as opposed to just a great composer on her own. Yes, and this is not outdated. This is something that still happens today. Mm-hmm. For example, if you look up anything about Usvoskaya, you cannot find anyone who almost doesn't introduce her as Shostakovich's pupil. Mm-hmm. Um, she studied with Shostakovich, sure, but she developed her own style and um, people can't seem to help but pair her with Shostakovich. And on that note, he is quoted as saying she, <laughs> like, this is actually really uh, a cool thing. Like, Oh, she influenced me more than I influenced her, you know, the student being the teacher. Um, I mean, that's that's impressive. Um, now, I know Shostakovich is a popular composer, and that probably has a good amount to do with it, but it's important to not um, discuss uh, Ustvoskaja as like, oh, this is the composer who's a student of another composer who is a man. Um, yeah. This is an original thinker. Um, yeah, I mean, we can definitely make links to influences of people who are close to them. I mean, I don't think it's invalid to say, hey, yeah, you know, they might have some similarities in their styles because, you know, one was the teacher, one was the student, or one, you know, they were a married couple or whatever the um, situation or relationship may be there. But just to introduce these, you know, these female composers as, oh, the wife of so-and-so, the student of so-and-so, the teacher of so-and-so, it's like, why can't we just have so-and-so. <laughs> yeah, and after you listen to her music, I mean, it's 
she's the one you want to talk about because it's just it's unlike anything I've heard. And I mean, we're composers, Han and I. We listen to a lot of music. Um, I'm not saying we have like the most seasoned ears in the world or anything, but like <laughs> this is something that really stands out in an obvious way. Um, that being said, this kind of comes back full circle. You know, we talked about her music being censored and just think about it. There's pieces she doesn't want to include in her catalog due to, you know, the constraints of the time being censored, being pressured. And then she's already composing against the grain, being a woman composer, establishing her own style and constantly getting paired with Shostakovich and stuff like we've discussed the biographical issues and the controversy and all that. But doesn't it make sense why someone in that position might want to control you know, how their output's viewed a little bit, how their biography's viewed a little bit, you know, like they're literally coming out of like this this crazy time in history, in world history, while being oppressed, being a marginalized group. It's like uh, when you look at it that way, it makes a lot more sense why there's issues on the biography and why Uswaskaj is outright making a statement like, go to this source. Um, because even if it might not be entirely like objective academic factual it's it's what the composer wanted you know yeah now all that said that's up for you to decide <laughs> we're not going to make you do anything yeah just um, take what we say and think about it for a minute yes but you have the information now so um go down that rabbit hole you know look into it all that said, um, you can see a lot about how women are portrayed if you look into the context of this sound, of this time. Um, you know, honestly, it's not something we've moved on from yet, especially in academ academia. Oh, yeah. I mean, today, not even just in academia, even in pop music, you'll see a lot of, you know, music critics or biographers or whoever they may be writing up, you know, their anecdotes on music by you know, female artists by women composers, whoever it may be. And when they do this, they often use language that is really patronizing, condescending, um, infantilizing. And it's really unprofessional, especially when comparing it to artists of similar styles who are men. And this is just some, I mean, this is something I noticed when I was looking up reviews for an artist in one of my electronic music classes. It was like, well, hang on, how come this EDM artist gets like a really nice professionally made um, review, but this other EDM artist who has a very similar style and is a woman gets all these like more patronizing descriptors of her music and gets, you know, harsher um, criticism on her stuff. You know, it's like, what what's going on here? Yeah, and to deal with that in, in you know, the Soviet Union is is hard. And in 2020 America. Yeah, and actually that's even something too. Uswaskaya lived all the way to 2006. Like imagine just 1919 to 2006. Like that's a long lifetime. And to see so much, you know, in some ways it's a long lifetime, but it kind of makes you realize like, was this stuff really that long ago? Has the world really changed that much? Sure, you know, we had like, you know, significant changes in technology and all that, but like how much social progress has been made? These are deeper questions, but maybe you can <laughs> tune into like hardcore history or something and <laughs> study up. Yes. That being said, let's get into the music. There's so much to talk about. And if you go to um, Uswaskaya's website, um, 
you can just see like the, the list is kept to 20 or so works. Um, and that's really what was approved by her and what, you know, she would like the world to listen to, I guess. Um, for this, we actually started with like an early work. Um, a trend you'll notice is that like a lot of these works are premiered decades after their composition. We saw this with Scott Joplin. We've seen it with Undine Smith-Moore. Um, in this case, it's not like racism that's stopping the pieces from being performed. It's literally like the censorship of the music itself. Um, and then, of course, being a woman. So there's this, you know, now we're getting a complex um, view of like the different uh, social political environments during this time. You can't see it, but I am nodding aggressively right now. <laughs> um, this one is Concerto for Piano, uh, String Orchestra, and Timpani. It's composed in 1946. The premiere was in um, February 1964 in Leningrad. And I hope we're pronouncing that city right. <laughs> All that said, this is dedicated to a pianist, Alexei Lubomov. Um, and you can actually see the performance of the very same pianist just right on YouTube. Yeah. So this is really cool. Um, you can see all that on YouTube. There's even a score video. So you can see the concert and the score video. Um, and I think actually uh, maybe every piece we talk about has a score video somewhere. Yeah. But anyways, this is like an earlier one. Um, so I think it's really good to start with this one and then see, you know, how the style unfolds in some of... Um, Usfoskaja's other approved work. Now, what you're wondering is, who would like this? I think, generally speaking, if you're a fan of romantic music, modern music, you're going to like this. I think this has something for everyone. Yeah, this is definitely a piece that I think can appeal to a lot to a wide variety of audiences. Yeah, it's it. One thing that'll strike you about Usfoskaja's work. In this one, but especially in the later ones, is how percussive it is. Like, this is hard-hitting pieces. There's a lot of still, like, lyrical moments in this, and I think it's something that you can really latch on to still. Like, if you are, you know, a fan of really melodic works, things like that, it's a piano concerto. Now, the piano itself is actually a really cool feature in her work because um, the way she uses it is, like I said, very uh, a percussive way. I mean, to an extent, it's, it's a percussion instrument. Um, so you get these, like, really big homophonic sections, these huge chords. Um, this one still has, like, a lot of, like, linearity to it, um, a lot of melodic elements to it. So I think it's just really, like, if I were to show someone the first Uswaskaya piece, I would do this one. Yeah, and I think it's a great uh, a great pick. Um, it has a lot of, I mean, it's a piano concerto, so you're going to expect me to say it has a lot of really great piano writing, which it does. Um, string orchestra, though, that's worth noting. Right? Yeah, it's piano and string orchestra, but I think that um, both the writing for the orchestra and the piano um, bounce off of each other really well, and I think overall as a full piece, it's just really captivating. What I like, too, is there's these, there's like, solo moments like mm -hmm. no orchestra just piano moments and it kind of like puts you in a whole different space um i like to see that and it's like kind of like patiently developed yeah the pacing of it is definitely i mean it's as joshua said it's it's patient 
Um, but I think I really like pieces like that. And I don't see enough pieces like that personally. So I love it. <laughs> well, you know, to be clear, what I mean is like, you'll get the aggressive stuff, like right in the beginning, you'll get the aggressive stuff. But then there's moments where things really settle down. And yeah. you have like a slow development kind of slow uh, uh, solo section. Yeah, it's almost like a little stasis going on. And it's really, really nice. Yeah. Um, compared to her later works, it's not quite as like, I mean, we said this was aggressive. It's not quite as aggressive as her later works. Um, so the the next one that is definitely like one of my favorites is Symphony Number no. Two. This one is <laughs> is crazy. It's a bop. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so what's cool about this one is it's for a reciter and a orchestra. It's like a it's like I wouldn't say it's a chamber orchestra necessarily, but it's a chamber orchestra. Yeah, though. Ustvolskaya might not like the term of like a chamberness to it because it is a very massive sounding piece. Oh, yes. No, when I first heard this piece, I just I assumed it was a full like symphony orchestra going on. But it sounds like a very, very, very big piece. But when you look at videos of performances, you realize, oh, that's not as many performers as I expected. Yeah. And this is the one we definitely want to talk a bit more about at length. Um, first off. This is Symphony Number no. Two, um, and it's Symphony Number no. Two with the subtitle "True and Eternal Bliss." That'd be in English, um, but the text here for Symphonies Two, Three, and Four, there is a fifth symphony, but Two, Three, and Four have the same—not the exact same text, but the same author of the text at yeah, least. Yeah, Hermanus Contractus. Yes, um, and this one is in the performance. It's pronounced in Russian. Um, these are religious texts. Um, now, the role of religion in um, Ustoskaya's work is um, a little, like, you know, debated. But, I mean, what's cool about this piece is there's a video you can find called um, Ustoskaya Scream Into Space. If you search that on YouTube, there's, like, a, a really cool documentary. It's, it's rare, you know, mm -hmm. to see a publicly available documentary and she's just talking about her music and going, you know, on adventures, interview stuff, you know. Yes. And this documentary, it's spoken in Russian, but there are English subtitles that we saw that were included. Yes. And Symphony Number no. 2 is talked about at length. And what's so cool is if you find the video, we'll keep it in the show notes of the performance of this symphony. You can see the original reciter, and in the documentary, he's in it. He's talking about you know his experience with the piece, what he thinks about it. You can see the original conductor, members of the ensemble rehearsing. It's like literally an inside look into the piece. Yeah, it's really really awesome. And in there, where she composed it is just out. <laughs> I don't know if it's in the middle of nowhere, but she like has the car parked off on the side of the road, and she's like, "This is where I." would compose this piece yes and i think that's a really interesting place because i know a lot of people say oh yes i went to this village and i rented an airbnb or i went out into the mountains in a cabin or whatever it may be all those are wonderful and valid but to say yeah i pulled my car over on the side of the road to compose on the highway i think that's just so interesting wow i mean <laughs> i need to level up I, where i'm recording this podcast right now is where i write my pieces <laughs> in my my uh my office in my apartment <laughs> yep 
though it is nice you know i got the setup but this isn't about me <laughs> yeah this is a yeah what the heck josh this is not the joshua mallard episode of lost the time yeah we'll do a spin-off series yeah um that being said the whole scream into space thing like this is the recider plays such a central role in this and what i like to say and what really gripped me is like i mean it's kind of counterintuitive to how the piece is but i think it does demonstrate it. it's like when the reciter talks, you listen. The ensemble isn't playing. And the text is really, like, gripping. Like, every time the reciter talks, they're saying, like, you know, oh, Lord, they're crying. Like, they're trying to be heard. They're screaming into the void. We do yes. enough of that, you know. Yep. Um, they're trying to be heard, and they're kind of, like, begging to the heavens to be heard. And it's like the reciter's got such a good voice for this. Like, Oh, my gosh, yes. It's just really good. Like, And then the music is, like, it's heavy, like huge, huge chords, really dissonant. It's like it's like such a static, slow moving piece. I think it's like one you have to listen to. Yeah, the orchestration is absolutely stunning. I mean, this is just a really, really, really captivating piece. I mean, if you're just looking for something new to listen to, please, I mean, please check this out. This piece is awesome. It's not even a full size orchestra, but it sounds massive. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's something worth noting, you know, like we don't just orchestrate pieces to sound big as composers all the time. But, you know, when someone does it differently, I think that's like a big, a big thing to note. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I really think the recider plays such a good role into this. Um, and it's, I think even though it's really dissonant, like it, say you don't like dissonant music, you don't like, you know, a lot of what comes out of like Western 20th century music, I think you'll still like this. Yeah, it's very, it'd be very difficult not to like it. I think it's so transparent, the programmatic element to it and what's going on, but also um, the reciter gives you something to follow the whole time. It's not like there's like, I don't know, it's not like um, an intricate, there's not intricate like lines going through the piece. It's really like these solid like figures, these block chords mm -hmm. that really hit. Yeah, I think it's a really, really impactful piece. And I think that it would, religious or not, I think it would definitely sit with a listener for a while after the first time they hear it. Oh, yeah, we got derailed a little bit on the religious note. Even though it's a religious text, um, Ustvolskaya has said that it's not religious music and maybe she's not, like, composing it with that intention, but it is spiritual. And by that, she means... She says she puts everything into her pieces, like, you know, her heart, her soul, all her work. It's like, and, and it, in a sense, it becomes like a spiritual experience for her of composing it. Uh, but the reciter also says that you can put whatever you want into this piece emotionally, like what you want to get out of it. You know, I mean, we're English speakers. We don't speak Russian. We don't understand the text, you know. But you can you can definitely understand what's going on. And there's translation on her website. Yes. Listen to this one. And after you do that documentary interview kind of thing is so cool. Um, it's just like you see what it's like for the orchestra to rehearse. You see the reciter talk. You see Ustvolskaya talk about her music. It's just like this is the, the kind of stuff you want, especially with the issues of the biography. This is like one of the rare moments you can see someone. And I like looking for those because we saw that she lived all the way to 2006. That makes me think, oh, there's going to be interviews. 
Oh, yeah. And it's really awesome because we don't see, unfortunately, we don't see that with a lot of composers on the show. And another note about the documentary, it's just on YouTube. You don't have to have like a Netflix subscription or anything like that, anything fancy. You could just watch it. It's up there. It's free. Just as long as you have internet and a device to watch YouTube on, you can watch it. Yeah, this is one you don't want to miss out on. Um, the next one we want to talk about is quite a bit different. Symphony Number no. 5, Amen. Mm-hmm. So this one's really cool. The instrumentation. Well, first off, the whole timeline of these pieces. The first one we talked about, the concerto, was nineteen forty-six. Yeah. Work two, nineteen seventy-nine. We're going in sort of order. This one is in nineteen eighty-nine, nineteen ninety, and it's for voice, oboe, trumpet, tuba, violin, and percussion. Specifically, the percussionist is playing a wooden cube, not to be confused with a wood block, but a wooden cube. So it's just like, it's a big one. It's like, yes, it's a cube. <laughs> um, uh, the text is another religious text. It's the, it's Lord's Prayer. And you can, depending on the performance, it might be pronounced in like Russian, English, or German. Um, now, this is one where you can kind of see her music sort of like actually get the attention it deserves because it was composed in 89, 1990 and performed in 1991 in New York. So this is like her music getting into the West a little bit. That being said, I think it should be in the West a lot more because outside of, you know, Russia, a lot of people haven't heard of her music. Yeah. That being said, this is, um, there's a recording online by um, Ensemble Continuum that you can find by Joel Socks. Um the instrumentation for this is so cool and the way it's handled is really cool. Yeah. If you listen to this, I mean, when I first listened to it, I thought that the just the the way that she orchestrated this was really, really interesting. And I can't think of a lot of other pieces that, you know, handle this kind of instrumentation this way. I I mean, can you, Josh? No, it's such a sparse and patiently developed opening. And I think, like, it's it's just one of those examples where, like, you know, the instrumentation is so apt, the choice of timbre is so apt. Um, so I think that's really one of the things that's going to jump out at you. Um, I say that because, you know, it still has, like, its own dissonant harmonic language. But, you know, maybe if, if some of the pieces we've talked about have challenged you as a listener, um, we like to point out some other elements of the piece that you can kind of get into, Um you know, we've covered a big, I mean, we went from ragtime to this. Yeah. So um, we're, we want to tell you some other things about the pieces that you might really like. I have to say also the voice in this one is such a good use. It's like, you know, reciting, but it's like, I don't know, the way they mix the recording I heard, it's just so boomy and resonant. It's, it works, you know? Oh, yeah. It sounds really well done. Um, another thing I would like to to just bring up is the orchestration in this piece is so interesting. Like each individual line is very simple. Like it might just be like straight quarter notes or whole notes, you know, nothing super crazy, not a lot of repeating pitches, um, pretty stagnant, but just the way each instrument is treated and just the combination of that with all the other instruments is just so, it's just really fascinating to me, and it cre- creates these ways that these instruments are used in a way that I would not have thought to do. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that stuck out to me is, like, the tuba. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a low instrument, and the the 
use of it is consistently low in the piece and it's really distant from the other instruments in that sense so like you get this these these big low resonant sounds and then like on top is like oboe and you you can like very easily follow the lines as han said um but it, it puts you in this whole space you know um there's something as we said about like you know the recording and the mixing and how that plays into it but i think like this really captures its own sort of like sound world really well. Oh, yeah. I think the sonic textures that are going on here are really, really captivating. And, you know, when a lot of people talk about textural music, you know, they think of, I don't know what they think of. I'm not going to say what, <laughs> but this know. is something that you would look at and you would be like, this is a like you would not think that with this combination of instruments, again, a voice, oboe, trumpet, tuba, violin, percussion, you would not think that the sounds that, you, you might think as a composer, oh, well, that's a weird combination. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. But if you are ever curious what a good thing would, what a good way to orchestrate this kind of ensemble would be, please listen to this piece because Ustvalskaya just nailed it. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, we've, we've talked about timbre and texture in the context. We won't completely nerd out on you, but it's not sustained tones most of the piece. It's like a continuous unfolding rhythmic pattern. It keeps going, you know, short durations, quarter notes and eighth notes. And, you know, the the way it unfolds is what's truly interesting. It's almost like a unbroken, constantly going progression. Yeah. Um, and if you listen to Symphony Number no. 2 before this, you'll kind of notice, like, that's something. It's like these these blocks of sound that are unfolding, constantly happening, you know, at regular intervals, you know, these hitting aggressive things. And even though this one isn't as like intense and punchy and like really aggressive, there's still that that element of like, you know, things are unfolding. You're trying, I mean, in, in the symphony number two, it's kind of like the reciter's trying to be heard, trying to stop the music and, and speak out. This one is kind of like similar where the music is like, it keeps going. You know, in, in the, you know, uh, in, in number two, it's like eternity, eternity, eternity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like that. Yeah, this one's a little similar in that, yeah. We're getting a little, uh, you know, lyrical, romanticizing it a bit, but... Well, we love these pieces so much. I mean, it's like, of course we're gonna, you know, nerd out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and this one, it has a score video. We'll include that in the show notes, um, but... Score videos, you know, if you read music, this is the easiest way to access it as a Western composer, like mm -hmm. seeing the score right in front of you. Um, so I think this is really cool. Um, all that said, Ustvolskaya is a great composer, like without a doubt. Uh huh. And I think should be discussed in the context of great composers. Um, the biggest thing is that her music went through such a... a like turbulent time being censored and stuff and so we're lucky that she lived long enough to see you know her music come to fruition you know the, getting these pieces performed but we're at the start of like you know the show like we talk about lost the time right after composers deaths is where their music literally starts to fall off some pieces it's very hard for them to sort of like survive after a composer passes and you know it's up to us to keep this stuff going um especially in the west you know usvoskaya has had a harder time getting her music out in the west in the u.s in particular stuff like that so um you know it'd be cool to just see more performances 
the symphony number no. five was in new york it'd be cool if we could go to new york sometime and you know see it performed or something yeah and i mean the proof is also that some of these are not like huge ensembles so um these are works that could be performed at smaller forces yeah and the musical content itself is not incredibly difficult not saying that these are not like you know, big major works that professionals should be playing. They are. Professionals should be playing well, these. <laughs> if you watch the documentary part, there's a part where she says, like, number two, symphony number two is really hard to play. Okay, well, not all <laughs> the pieces are like that, Joshua. She said, like, disappointingly bad about one performance or something. <laughs> that We've was just a funny there. moment. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, you know, people can pick these up. Um, university ensembles, community ensembles, stuff like that. That being said, the theme here is like the loss to time element is very much still happening. You know, we need to keep this music going, but also the loss to time did happen. There's like, you know, we're just lucky Ustvolskaya lived long enough to push her music out because there's a time where a lot of it was censored or controlled. Yeah, definitely. And also living long enough to just kind of have a say over how her music is presented, um, what of her music is presented, as you said, Joshua, and just how her life is presented. I mean, we don't have a ton of details on her early life, and that might have been intentional, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's like, it's in the Soviet Union, there's a whole war, things like that. But um, when you look at other great composers, um, people are, are ready to dig up information. And, you know, we'd like to see increased academic interest finding manuscripts, getting more scores out there that that are approved, you know. I wouldn't want my music to be like my deleted scores or something off of Sibelius to be pulled up. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely not. Because, you know, a lot of composers, you know, there may be a reason they don't want that music played anymore. Maybe it doesn't represent them anymore. Maybe if there was some kind of underlying message with that music that they don't agree with anymore, or they find problematic now, maybe their views change. Um, or in this situation where it was censored and they were kind of forced to have their music portray something that maybe wasn't authentic to their actual beliefs at the time. Yep. And at the very least going forward, hopefully there's more performances of her work, but also people who are being like authentic in their, um, in their discussion of her work, like discuss her, don't discuss Shostakovich. Yeah. Come on. Um, we talk about him enough. <laughs> yeah. What we should be doing as listeners, if you find a hidden gem, a composer that you haven't heard of, listen to their music, you know. We hope this inspires you to go check out those pieces and many more. 20, 20 pieces, you could get through those pretty quick. And as musicians, you know, we should try and get this work performed. Um, don't wait for someone to hand you the score, you know, like a director or something. Maybe let's get groups together and make this happen. I think there's even a festival of Ustvoskaja's work, like dedicated to her. It'd be nice to see those, like especially in the U.S. where we are, um, mm -hmm. just getting more of these these names out here. Um, all that said, thank you for listening. Let's tell you a little bit again about upcoming camp activities that you do not want to miss out on. Um, like we said earlier, there's other podcasts you should tune into three other podcasts. Definitely go give those a listen. There's also been these special edition piano talks. Um, so definitely check those out. And otherwise, um, we have Campground coming up, Campground 22. 
Han, how about you take it away? Yep, as I mentioned earlier, it's in late March, March 24th through 26th in 2022, if the Campground 22 was not evident enough. Um, And that's going to be up in Tampa Bay, Florida. So uh, Tampa, Florida and St. Petersburg, Florida. It's going to be a good weekend of uh, performances by really awesome performers. So please, please check it out. Yes. And also... Um, The upcoming concert, December 29th, check that out. It'll be a virtual one. Uh, You can find more info on that on the website. Uh, But the past concerts, there's links to those too if you want to stream them. Yeah, they're really, really awesome. Seriously, go check those out. Yeah, live music has been coming back, virtual concerts, all that stuff. I think it's really cool to see this happening. Um, And we hope you give those a listen. Wear a mask when you go to live events. (laughs) Yes, yes. Please donate, uh, support the cause, you know. Uh, We'd love to keep bringing campground reoccurring to the St. Pete and Tampa area, um, but also, you know, helps keep the podcast going, all the other things going. Yeah, you definitely want to learn about more composers who may be getting lost to time. And if you find a composer that you think is lost to time that you would like us to do an episode on, feel free to give us recommendations. We're always happy to learn about new composers. Yes, I think it's very easy to underestimate like how underrepresented some of these composers are, um, even if you just step out of classical music. Not just composers, but feel free to tell us about musicians and more, you know? Yes. Uh, we'd love to hear about them. Um, remember last time Scott Joplin mm-hmm. selling millions of copies and is completely slept on in many ways. Yeah, we want to not sleep on these folks. Yes, And of course, if they're lost to time, it stands to reason that we probably don't know about them and we could use your help. So feel free to comment uh, and thank you again for listening. All that said, we will see you next time. Yes. Happy holidays and happy new year, y'all. Yes. Party it up. Not too hard, though.